Hi, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of Amplify. This is the second installment in a special series of the podcast called Conversations, where I get to sit down and talk with Dr. T.R. Eckler about some topics that are relevant to emergency medicine, in addition to the monthly podcast that you'll hear on the emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice articles that are released by EB Medicine every month. Today's episode, Dr. Eckler and I sit down and talk about airways, management of airways, some of the newer things that we've had to adjust to in our practice because of COVID, and what our standard approach has become. When you're done listening, I'd really appreciate it if you would click the show notes and on the survey link and give me a little feedback. If you like the shorter form episodes and the additional content, we've got lots of great ideas for more to come in the future, and I'd really enjoy hearing from you. And now... On to our conversation. On the topic of COVID, I do want to spend a little time actually talking about the effects it's had. Most of us have become accustomed now to managing more and more critically ill patients. Where we used to have just observation units, now we have emergency department intensive care units where intensive care patients are boarding and critical care is being increasingly administered only in the emergency department as people get on the vent and then off the vent in the ED. Thankfully, EB Medicine does have some tools. If you haven't looked at the website recently, the the current topics in airway management, mechanical ventilation, supraglottic airway devices, and intubating patients with COVID was a, a great program with multiple modules that talked about some of the difficulties and many of the tools that you'd need to work in such an environment beyond ventilator management. It's interesting to see the number of tools that are now available. I remember when I came out of residency, when we were talking about airways, it was, are you intubating with a curved blade or a straight blade? Do you have access to a bougie? Maybe you have some other small fancy tool like a a stylet with a light at the end of it. And that was it. The The video laryngoscopes were just starting to hit the market and people were questioning, well, am I going to lose my direct laryngoscopy skills if I use this? And now it seems like we've got a plethora of devices available and not just for direct intubation, but things like supraglottic airways and one-stop cricothyrotomy kits where it's just a quick motion with a cutting stylet inside. So we've got so many tools available to us that it does seem that we work more in a kind of critical care shop environment than we used to. The The airway course brought up a couple of questions for me about the initial approach. I was just having this conversation actually yesterday with someone about my initial approach to any airway, not even the difficult airway, but I feel like I'm reaching for that video laryngoscope for 100% of my intubations now. I can't even remember the last time I did a direct laryngoscopy, and I don't really have any sense of loss for that skill. I don't feel like I've lost the skill of DL. I just feel like I have augmented it quite significantly with the video laryngoscope, and that's become my go-to first line for all patients. And I'm curious if you've seen that similarly in your practice, both in the rural setting and then where you are currently now. Have you seen any kind of transition in the last 10 years? So when I started in 2012, we had a video there in my residency right off the bat. And I think that there was always the encouragement to start with DL, but the VL was there if you need it, but they wanted to make sure that we developed both skills. And then 
one that that was one maybe one of the best parts about going to rural places is that every airway was my airway and there wasn't really a backup and and I got better at knowing every tool that I had in my toolkit and seeing if I could even expand that toolkit. So when you had someone that was going to be a difficult airway, I would always ask EMS what they had for their video laryngoscope setup because sometimes they have these great little CMAX setups or little like portable kits that are a little easier to manipulate and you can move them around. And I got to try a lot of different things. And I would tell you that I think the biggest change in my practice was if I'm worried about an airway, I don't immediately go to paralyze and sedate people. I tend to go to a lidocaine neb, maybe spray some lidocaine if I can, and then give people ketamine and take a look. Yeah. And I think that that has really helped me avoid getting to a position where I can't intubate and I can't ventilate way more frequently. Because if I'm in a bad situation and I realize that I've got an airway mass or I realize there's a ton of secretions that are there that I need to try to clear before I can can see, I think that making that decision while the patient's still ventilated, maximizing their oxygenation with BiPAP and with nasal cannula and and making sure that I position them as well as possible so that I really get that airway as optimized as I can before I have to make any decisions about where I'm going has has made it so that I've bought myself a lot of time in rural places to think through the problem and, and kind of figure out what was going to be my next step and how to safely take this airway if I had to and, and then go from there. Yeah, that actually brings up a good point. You know, back in the Stone Ages when I trained, the uh, uh, the choices were either we were going to put them on CPAP mm-hmm. or we were going to do an RSI. And it was either you're getting sedatives and paralytics in rapid sequence and then getting intubated or you're on a CPAP machine at some point. And the, uh, the transition to more of the anesthesia approach, which is despite having whatever it is in your stomach, we have a number of options. We don't have to immediately paralyze you and sedate you and jump into your airway just anticipating a disaster and then seeing it come to fruition. We can certainly consider an augmented intubation, like you mentioned, where we use some topical anesthesia and we sedate you with ketamine, which is not going to take away your respiratory effort, but allow us to get a good look without gagging you the entire time. And then decide, once I see the cords, whether or not we even need the paralytics. And if we do, then administer it then. It doesn't have to be the rapid sequence or no sequence kind of choice. There are multiple options. There's rapid sequence, there's augmented, there's delayed sequence, there's sometimes even a little BiPAP and ketamine, and then you realize, hey, we've arrived. I don't need to do any more, which uh, was also kind of a realization for us, I think, in emergency medicine, where we were planning on intubating somebody in severe respiratory distress. They're not tolerating the BiPAP. They're hypoxic. We go, okay, just, just stay with the BiPAP for a second while I get my stuff and go ahead. Now I'm getting my things together. Let's give the ketamine so that when I'm ready, I'm going to take a quick look and then hopefully be able to intubate. And then you give the ketamine and all of a sudden, the respiratory effort drops and the anxiety is gone and that air hunger is gone mm-hmm. and they're tolerating the mask better and now they're ventilating better and now they're oxygenating better and you go, well, I think we just solved the problem. Do I really even need to go further? Is that even okay? And we're starting to realize, yeah, that that's absolutely okay. That could be your your destination right there and you don't have to go any further. And it's been refreshing to see that we have this spectrum of options now and everybody doesn't need to end up on a vent. And I think 
COVID especially made mm. that a very, very useful mm -hmm. set of skills and methods because we run out of vents. And if when you run out of vents and all you've got left is BiPAP, then you're starting to think, well, okay, if, if I've got some BiPAP, how am I going to maximize this patient's ability to live on BiPAP because I don't have a ventilator for them? And this became very helpful to have these kinds of skills in your back pocket and to understand that, you know what, if they're uncomfortable on the BiPAP, there are things you can do to make them comfortable on it so that you don't have to progress further. And if you're going to progress further and you're in a scenario like COVID, where there's only going to be two of you in the room, you don't have 12 people there, there's only two of you donned in every protective gear you can find trying to intubate this patient that you don't have much time when they come off the BiPAP and you need every tool you can get to make this as rapid as possible. And you're not going to start with DL. You're going to start with your video laryngoscope and then take a quick look at the cords and hopefully intubate this patient with uh, RSI or if they've already received some ketamine, maybe not. We also collected some new tools, some disposable fiber optic intubating scopes, which was a, a great product to discover as well and became very useful in that kind of scenario and added to the armamentarium. So it's been good to see that now we have a number of options. We still get calls from rural hospitals mm -hmm. where none of those things are available. Mm -hmm. So every now and then I still get the, hey, I had to intubate this CHF exacerbation, which in my mind is something that I haven't had to do in a decade. And I can't even recall the last time that I had to intubate somebody who had a CHF exacerbation. But I will hear routinely from, from rural departments, hey, we have two BiPAP machines or one, one CPAP machine and it was taken. So this patient went from a non-rebreather mask to just fully intubated and ventilated. And now I need to get them to you because we have one ventilator and they're on it. <laughs> and I might need it for the next person who walks in the door. So how quickly can we get them to you? So- it's good to hear that we have lots of options, but it is still a little concerning to hear that many of our rural colleagues may not have access to them. But I think having worked in that rural place, I would tell you that I, I like talking to those rural people now in our, our job where we're like the level two tertiary care center and, and everyone is sending us things because I'll coach them through treating that CHF exacerbation. I'll get them to start a nitro drip. I'll get them to put them on their BiPAP and, and really kind of crank up those settings and try to push that fluid out and save that person from an intubation. And I think that, that, as you said, even if the tools aren't there in the hospital, you've got a lot of these rural EMS agencies that have other tools. And if you reach out to your partners in your area and say, hey, you know, my vents are used. Can we borrow your vent? Can we borrow one of your CPAPs to try to basically hook it up to the wall and buy this person some time? There are fixes and tricks that get you the tools that you need if you can kind of look around and see. I had IDMS the other day bring us the tools that you can check uh, uh, carbon monoxide levels because we had patients came from a carbon monoxide exposure at school and we don't have the capability to measure carbon monoxide levels at that small freestanding ER. But I called EMS and, and we talked to a couple of people and they brought us one of their monitors and one of their, their basically pulse oxygen special sensors that can measure for carbon monoxide. And I got to clear a couple from the emergency room that had negative carbon monoxides and a little bit of symptoms because I was basically able to save them an ambulance ride and save them a bill for you know a transfer down to another hospital or to, to then make one of our ambulances rush some blood samples down to our other lab just by trying to figure out a different way of, of solving the problem from other things that are there. Yeah. So I think that's part of the tool set you get from having worked in rural medicine is the 
we're all a team. And if I don't have these tools, maybe EMS has the tools. And if EMS doesn't have the tools, maybe there's someone nearby who does. I could just borrow them for a short while. Can I can I ask you a BiPAP question? Yeah. Have you ever been on BiPAP? Have I ever been? No. Yeah. So yeah. I, they gave us the chance to be put on BiPAP in medical school. And I jumped. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely put me on BiPAP. I found it humbling how hard that thing forces pressure into you. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've had a few residents. So my one of my little rural hospitals actually had residents. And it was, it was a very busy rural emergency room. But a couple of the residents were, at one point, we had a, like an older patient with CHF and, and that came in, like combination CO, CHF, COPD. And I was like, well, let's, let's get her started on the BiPAP and see if we can do something. And they were like, oh, come on, BiPAP doesn't work that good. Like, she just needs to be intubated. And I said, oh, you think so? So we, and we had a few BiPAPs there. So I put the patient on a BiPAP and then I put the resident on a BiPAP. And watching that resident, like, absorb the physical experience of whether or not BiPAP really was pushing pressure into his chest and whether or not he was breathing and getting a better tidal volume. It was the the look on his face with that mask on and the way his eyes went wide was worth every bit of, of lecturing that I could ever have done because it changed his mind in 10 seconds. And also, I think it gave him the same sympathy that I have for these people that it is uncomfortable and it is mm-hmm. scary. And if you're mm-hmm. already having that, I am going to die, I can't breathe sense that gives you that overwhelming air hunger like you described, it is something that I think you need to medically try to manage for the patient so that they can tolerate that life-saving treatment that is not in any way or shape comfortable at all. That's fascinating. Maybe I'll head to my next shift a little early and uh, see if I can find a BiPAP circuit and, uh, and take a few puffs and see it what is, it feels it like. It is 100% worth it because it is, wow. there is, it is very difficult to describe that sense and especially the pressure change when it mm. goes from EPAP to IPAP. Oh, you are a better provider and you are more ready to manage those patients when you have a real sense of what it's like. That's a good point. I do find that physicians are typically better at treating their patients if they have been a patient before. Mm-hmm. The The most humbling thing I have ever seen was treating one of my physician colleagues who was not an emergency physician, but who called me up one day when I was working a night shift and said, I'm on my way in. I think I'm having a heart attack. And I got a chance to treat him for a STEMI, which was a unique experience. And he got rushed off to the cath lab. But ever since then, there's been a different relationship the two of us have had, and I could see a shift in him when he's treating patients. And so I do think it's valuable to to have that experience as a patient and to have those procedures performed on you, because then it gives you a better appreciation of what it's like to be on the other end of it. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me about these topics. If you are listening and you found this conversation helpful, then I encourage you to go to ebmedicine.net, leave me a little note in the contact form, share your feedback, and uh, and let me know what you think. And we'll be back next time with some more caffeine and conversations with Dr. Eckler. Remind me if we do airways to tell you about the time that I flew into Las Vegas in a tiny little airplane holding a scalpel next to this patient who had really bad swelling in the neck and just couldn't get enough air in there. That was probably my most memorable airway story ever. Oh, come on. You got to tell me that now. So that was supposed to be the teaser for the next podcast, (laughs) but I had a kind of middle-aged female come in and she said she had a sore throat. I, I always love how the chief complaint can really undersell how bad it is. So she had a sore throat and she was 
uh, like maybe a moderately obese lady, but her anterior neck was pretty swollen. And she said, you know, it's just hard to swallow. And I feel like it's a little tough to breathe. And you could listen and there was like maybe a little bit of strider, but not anything real pronounced. But otherwise her vitals were totally stable. But she was real kind of swollen and firm in the front of her neck. So I said, okay, let's, we'll get your labs. We'll take a CAT scan. We'll see what's going on in there and figure this out. But she was good and stable. And I wasn't worried that I'd do immediately do something for her airway to protect her. And her CAT scan, it's a pencil from the, the top of her pharynx all the way down through her vocal cords. And it was just so swollen and so edematous. Yikes. And the radiologist couldn't tell if it was like subcutaneous hemorrhage or cancer, or it was just ugly and swollen and terrible. And so I basically called all the, the consults in this hospital that we had. We had a few, we had thoracic surgery, we had anesthesia. This was a little bit of a bigger hospital that had the residents that we worked at. And everyone was just like, oh, geez, you know, I, I, I don't think we can do anything about that here. But then we tried to transport it to another hospital and EMS said, well, what are we going to do if the airway gets worse? Because mm. you can't really cry. What the are they going to do? Because it's so, everything was so thick there. So the That's plan right. we agreed on was, because Dr. Eckler's shift had ended, we're going to put Dr. Eckler in a medical transport plane with the patient. And if things get worse, we'll do a cut down oh, into gosh. her throat. So basically, the, the, everyone, on an hands, airplane. everyone hands me a scalpel and, and like an airway kit and then a crank kit. And, and basically, me and these medics get on this plane with this nice lady who's still doing great, vital, stable, just kind of wondering why we're making such a big deal out of this. And she's never been on an airplane before. Wow. And so and so we get her on the airplane and she's a little nervous about the airplane, not about her throat, not about the swelling, not about her airway being like the smallest airway I've ever seen all the way down. And we fly up and then they clear out all the air traffic around Las Vegas because we're coming in as an emergent medical transfer. And so we fly straight down through the strip in Las Vegas in this tiny little medical, you know, turboprop plane. And it is just the most beautiful sight out the windows, like the lights. And it's incredible. And no one, you don't never get to take this pathway because they never clear out the airspace over the strip and everything else. And I'm like, this is the best airplane flight I've been on. But every time this lady coughs, I get so nervous that I think I'm going to just like, like pop because she's, I just, I'm so worried about what's going to happen to her airway. And me and the medics, every time she coughs, we all kind of stop and look at her and is, is something changing? Is she, and then she's like, she's fine. But she refuses to look out the window and see this view the whole time because she's so afraid about being in an airplane. And we wow. get her up to the next hospital and she stabilizes and does great and it gradually resolves. And that was that. Wow. And, and there then, it is. And you get and, the sunset over and, Las Vegas. And, and, <laughs> and it was in the middle of the night. It was like 10. Oh, in the middle of the night. night. Wow. So then they fly me back home and I sleep three hours and then drive back home and try to explain this job to civilians. And I still haven't figured out how to do that. Oh, my goodness. That is a fantastic story. <laughs> that, is, that is just amazing. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this second episode in Conversations. I look forward to having many more with Dr. Eckler, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. There is a link in the show notes for a listener survey. I would really appreciate it if you would give us a little feedback. And if you enjoyed this podcast and all the others on Amplify, give us a rating, whether you're in the App Store, the Google Play Store, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, wherever it is you're listening, we would love to have that rating as a little bit of positive encouragement to keep going. Thanks so much. And until next time, be safe, everyone.